Hey guys, this is Rick Godwin, pastor of Summit Church here in San Antonio. Thanks for joining us today. You know, we're excited to have you on our podcast. Our goal is to inspire you and to challenge you and help everyone realize their full potential in Christ. Now enjoy the message. Well, part two today, we're going to talk about the fear of discouragement, that big giant of discouragement that comes to everybody. So we learned last week that when our focus is on our obstacle, our giant, we stumble. But when we focus on God, his word, his power, the giant will tumble. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. So you and I have a choice to make when trouble happens. We can give up on God or we can give in to God. I'd like to suggest from the book of Nehemiah that whenever we face trouble, we've got to deal with obstacles, problems, rubble, trash. So allow me to set the context. After King Solomon died, thanks to his idiot son, the country was split into two kingdoms. Do you know, most of the churches in this city, any city USA, are nothing more than splits. Have you ever noticed that? I can take you to the different churches that split over some offense or some difference and started. They didn't have church growth. They just had church theft. They just took people who are already planted in place and started up somewhere else. I thought, go out and start your own. Don't steal from other people. Anyway, it goes on. So they split the kingdom. We had the North Kingdom, had 10 tribes. It's referred to as Israel in the Bible. Judah, the Southern Kingdom, had two tribes. But because of deliberate disobedience, the Assyrians conquered Israel. Even though Judah, that tribe, saw all this happening, they continued to rebel against God. There are some people you just can't help. In 586 B.C., the Babylonian army destroyed Jerusalem and deported God's people to the area we now know as Iraq. Now, the good news is that a lot of God's prophets predicted that that captivity would come, but it wouldn't destroy the nation, and the people would ultimately be allowed to go back home. Well, the prophet Daniel understood that truth when he was reading the book of Jeremiah. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, he said, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the destruction of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So let's talk about discouragement with that kind of as our background to this story. Let's look at what happens in Nehemiah chapter 4. The people have faced their giants. They're back in their land. They're whistling while they work, rebuilding the broken down walls of Jerusalem. And it says of them in verse uh, chapter 4, it says, people worked with all their heart. That's commendable. And then discouragement set in. In verse 1 through 2, they said, when Sanballat, he's a guy that quit church, when Sanballat heard, we're rebuilding the wall, he got angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. What are those feeble Jews doing, he said. And notice that these workers are called feeble. That means withered and miserable. 
you are not feeble, folks. If you're redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you ought to be bad to the bone. Feeble? You've got to be kidding me. See, whenever you attempt to get involved in any work of God, maybe God gives you a dream, gives you a vision, gives you some kind of an idea for a future, whether it's a church or whatever, you're going to always encounter opposition. If you're a believer, you're a target. That's it. If you don't know spiritual warfare, you don't understand it is the normal part of Christianity, spiritual warfare, two kingdoms in opposition. And when you join God's kingdom, you become an enemy to the enemy, and now you're a target. So God says, don't be surprised when trouble shows up. In this world, you will have trouble. Suck it up, Sparky. <laughs> I'm sorry. I want to go to a tough church. You know, I don't, I, this little boutonniere in my little tuxedo and the sweet little minister with his manicured face. Give me something straight. The enemy will try to steal, kill, and destroy from you. He has no pity on your children, your future, your life, your family. He doesn't care. All he wants to do is to kill, steal, and destroy. So if you're soft and you're passive and you're compliant, you will get run over. You've got to learn how to fight. So when you face trouble, you're going to have to deal with obstacles. The Bible calls it rubble in this rebuilding of the wall. So are you discouraged today? Let me give you off the top of my head three causes of discouragement from Nehemiah chapter 4. The first is fatigue, verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is wearing out. Simply put, the workers are tired. They've been hitting it hard day and night, and they need a little bit of rest. And by the way, sometimes you do. You're not your best when you're under a lot of fatigue. I told a mom this morning with a couple of little children and who said one of them was sick. She was up all night. She was really tired. She was here early for all call in our first service. I said, you go home and go to bed. Go get some rest. You don't quit. You don't quit church. You don't quit your job. You go take a break. Go get some rest. That's Bible. And I've never had a pastor tell me, leave, go home, go to bed. <laughs> That's exactly what she needed, because if you don't, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. See, the phrase, the people were giving out, carries the idea of staggering, kind of stumbling. So when you're physically drained, it's easy to become discouraged at the slightest problem. I'm already discouraged and now this or this, which by themselves are not that big, but they are when I'm worn out. They are, and you'll overreact, throw up your hands and quit. It's also interesting to notice when the workers became fatigued and discouraged, it was when the wall was built up to half its height. So a lot of times when we start a new project, first half goes pretty good. We're excited about accomplishing the goal. But when the newness wears off and the work becomes routine and maybe boring, then it's easy to become fatigued. Verse 10 says, we cannot rebuild the wall. Those are the same people who were described in verse 6 who said they worked with all their heart. Now they're saying, we can't do it. The second cause of, of this discouragement, frustration. You ever get frustrated? You watch the news too much. You think, we don't have a chance in this country, in this world. It's another virus. It's another strain of the virus. Virus. It's it's. It's racism. It's division. It's the economy. Even the, some of the dentists said, we can't get the, 
the crown material. There's a shortage. It didn't, it's, we're going to have to wait longer. I had a car rear end me, an elderly lady uh, last year. Took six months to get my car back. Six months. Oh, we're short on parts. We can't get anything. It's like one drama after, then they tear up all the roads. And then, and then we live, listen to me, we live in a culture of crisis. So it's just really easy to get frustrated. If I get on 281, I'm already frustrated. I'm already, I'm there. My dear God in heaven, that's when I want a little helicopter or something. I, you know, a couple of people in the Bible were translated. They just appeared and disappeared. Boom, boom. And I thought, I'd like that gift to come back. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Honey, I'll meet you at the restaurant. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Table for two, please. Yeah. So frustration. Verse 10 continues by saying, they said, there's so much rubble. I have so many problems. There's so much going on. We can't finish. We can't rebuild the wall. So they got discouraged because they were aggravated about all the obstacles they're facing. And some of you are facing them now. Could be financial, could be marriage, could be trouble with the kids, could be a trouble on the job or the economy. I'm sure they were encountering broken rocks, dried out mortar, and all kinds of debris that was under their foot trying to rebuild. And the junk was everywhere, and it was frustrating. And just as they lost sight of their goal, you can lose sight of your goal or vision when you just got gobs of problems in your life. Hebrews 12, verse 1 challenged us to get rid of everything that causes us to be frustrated in our pursuit of doing what God wants us to do. He says, let us strip off, throw away everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race marked out for us. So I don't know what the rubble is or obstacles in your life. I could be too much TV, might be a possession you're holding on to, an unhealthy relationship you won't let go of. Maybe there's some sin you're playing around with too long. Maybe you have a drinking or a drug problem. Maybe you're involved in some, some other kind of entanglement that's tripping you up, holding you back. The third cause of discouragement is fear, plain old fear. The enemies of the Lord's work struck fear in the heart of God's people, and they felt like giving up. Fear will do that, but God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a well-disciplined mind. So we're told all the time not to be afraid. Every time the Lord spoke, he says, be not afraid. Fear not. I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am thy God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Quote that to yourself when the enemy tries. It got a letter. Maybe it's a, a legal notice of someone filing a suit against you or your practice or something like that. Buckle up, buttercup. You're going to have to fight. Yeah, prayer. You know, you're going to have to suit up. You're going to have to quote God's word. You're going to get proper legal counsel as well. Remember, the enemy is the one who's at fault. The enemy's using people to attack you. It's always that way. So you can't give up just because you're afraid. Notice in verse 12, who gets afraid the fastest? It says, then the Jews who lived near these people came and told us 10 times. You know, if I saw you coming after nine, I'd be saying, hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more. They told us 10 times, wherever you turn now, the enemy's going to attack. You don't, you don't need the devil. You just go to church, and there's enough people. 
that'll fill you with fear. Oh, you're too young. Oh, you're too old. Oh, we can't afford that. Oh, you'll never have that. Oh, don't be thinking about going to school. You know, as tight as the economy is, we can't afford that. And, and you just leave God out of the equation and you leave God's ability to provide miraculous. We're supposed to be people gathered around a miracle God with miracle power and a miracle name. I mean, occasionally something miraculous ought to happen. Just seems to reason to me, right? So the most affected by fear are those living near these pessimistic people. If you want to limit the confusion in your life and discouraging thoughts that bring fear into your life, don't hang around with these toxic, negative people who have some ax to grind. They'll just keep throwing up and throwing up until you become like them. It's like the old saying goes, if you're going to soar with the eagles, you can't hang around with turkeys. Well, yeah. Clucking, plucking. You're supposed to be soaring. Let us mount up with wings like an eagle. Let us run and not be weary. Let us walk and not faint. Give me some of that. I'm a combat guy. I'm not a little passive, sit down, suck it up, be quiet, shut up, and just take it. Sorry, I won't line up for the gas chamber. I'll die, but I'll die on my feet, fighting, screaming, biting, kicking, whatever I can, but I won't be a good loser. I'm sorry. That offends the rest of you. No, 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 not on my watch. If fatigue, frustration, and fear are some of the causes of your discouragement, and they always are, and by the way, if you're friends with somebody and they've been hit like that and they're deeply discouraged and it's not your, it's not your hour, encourage them for crying out loud. Call them, send a text, keep building them up in the faith. Encourage them. That's free. And we ought to do it gladly and freely with our friends when they go through a fiery trial. I appreciate encouragement, don't you? Even a little bit is like a B12 shot, a just steroid shot. Let's get that. Let's get something hot, <laughs> something that'll jack you up. Okay, look at some cures for this discouragement. Number one, you'd think this would be obvious. Ask God for help. You know, when Peter was going under, he didn't, he didn't give God some 14-page letter. He didn't pray like some of you, four hours and 32 minutes. He said, help, save me. That's the best prayer. That's a good one, quick. But call on God for help. Nehemiah looked up before he launched out. He prayed first before he undertook this big job of rebuilding the wall. In verse 4 and 5, listen to him. He says, hear us, O God, while we are despised, turn our enemies' insults back on their own head. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sin from our sight, for they have thrown insults into the face of those trying to do your will. The builders, that's quite a prayer. That's called an imprecatory prayer. That's where you don't take revenge. You don't take it into your own hand. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, but I can call on God to judge them because he'll do it right and he'll do it at the right time. So I can call him. Let shame be their portion. Let them fall prey to the snare they've set for me. Let their toxic insults and accusations and slander come right back on their head, oh God. 
these imprecatory psalms. Break the teeth of the wicked, O God. You don't ever hear that in church, do you? It's right there in the Bible. And they prayed it gladly. I'm asking God to take care of my enemy. And believe me, I ask him. Yeah, I'll have the last laugh. Don't you worry. God says so, but I can't take it into my own hands. I do it wrong. I do it in the flesh. He knows the motive. He knows the timing. And when the Lord wants to get you, he'll get you at the worst time possible. Yeah, he will. He, he, he'll take the enemy down when it's the worst for him. They think they're doing so good for a few years and then all hell breaks loose. Don't worry. But you can pray that to God. I mean, some of you have been slandered. Some of you have been falsely sued. Some of you have had other issues. You've been falsely terminated because of some uh, moral boss or something trying to do something. Pray. So, Lord, let him reap what he just sowed. Let it judgment be upon his own head. I won't do anything. I forgive my enemy. But, God, I'm appealing to you to deal because if whoever touches you touches me, God says, right? That's quite a prayer. So he wasn't praying for his enemies to become sweet believers. Instead, for God to judge them. He knew the enemies were really fighting against God ultimately. So he asked God, you deal with them. He didn't give lectures to the worker organizations. He didn't organize a raiding party against the enemy. He didn't create a new political action group. He didn't create propaganda camps to put a different spin on stuff. So here's the principle you learn from Nehemiah. When people talk and slander against you, don't engage in that. Talk to God about them. Verse 9 tells us they prayed to God and posted a guard. When the enemy started talking, Nehemiah prayed, and the people stayed on track in focus. So I'll take my complaint to God. I'm not going to engage in any of that nonsense talk. Secondly, reorganize your priorities. In verse 13, Nehemiah said, Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest point on the wall at the places that were exposed posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. So if the enemy is going to attack, they assumed he would most likely attack at your weakest place. Where are you the weakest? In your relationships, in your marriage, in your moral? What? what? So Nehemiah put guards at the vulnerable spots. That served two purposes. It discouraged the enemy and it encouraged the people because it dealt with their fear. So when we're discouraged, one of the things we can do is recognize our priorities where I am most vulnerable. And everybody's vulnerable somewhere. Do you have a problem in your marriage? Well, do something about it. Don't just head to divorce court. Change your approach. Change your attitude. Get some help. Get some camping. <laughs> what did I say? Counseling. Camping. I don't know. Uh, see Percy after the service over here. Percy and Danielle do a great job in, in marriage relationships. And then young married couples, Sandy and Randy, have a class. There's none of us that doesn't need a tune-up and need some help. There are just some things we, we can be good at a lot of things and terrible at something else. And we need help. And you, could, you can spot maybe out of 10, you could spot probably eight of the problems, but there'll be two or three, you just can't see it, but somebody else can. And you need their help. And you'll never say, yeah, Percy, thanks. I, I've known that for a long time. Why? Well, I can't believe that, Percy. Why? That wouldn't be me. Percy says, yeah, it is you. <laughs> How do you get deceived? You don't know you're deceived. That's why you're deceived, you see. <laughs> so it takes, takes a few friends to tell you what's wrong. 
you know, if three people call you a donkey, you better go down and buy a saddle because everybody's not wrong. So you're not handling your business right. You're spending too much money. You're not, you're, 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 you could be overpaying uh, your staff. You could not know where the money's going or coming in. And maybe you're good at the job you do, but you're not good at management. Therefore, you need somebody to help you. That's a good thing to do. All of us need some help. So is there some junk going on on your job? Change and reorder your priorities. Are you going wayward in your walk with God? Well, don't stop following Jesus for crying out. Organize your schedule so you can meet with God on a regular basis. You know, get yourself plugged into a small group. You know, don't be overcome by discouragement. Do something about it. There is something you can stop, something you can do, something you can trim, but take action to overcome that nasty thing called discouragement. And then third, remember who God is, his awesome power. See, after looking everything over, sensing the discouragement within his team, Nehemiah rallied his troops. In verse 14, he says, don't be afraid of these guys. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Nehemiah didn't say, I'm great, I'm awesome. He says, let's remember God. He outranks everybody on earth, every president, every king, every kingdom. His name is above every name in heaven and earth, and every knee will bow and confess he is Lord. Nehemiah knew, even in the face of opposition, that success on this, this, out, this, this wall rebuilding was going to be wholly dependent on God who inspired it from the beginning. See, the scripture says, unless God builds the house, you labor in vain that try to build it. Unless God guards the house, the watchman watches in vain. So I need God in my marriage. I need God in my occupation. I need God in the ministry. We need God to do it right, no matter what it may be. So they needed to remember God, what he had promised, what he had done. And I love how one of my friends concluded his email to me. He says, Rick, this has been a very challenging year for us, but we're finding courage and strength in the promises of God. And so can you. And if I were with you or some of our friends were with you, they would be quoting those promises to assure you you're important to God. He won't leave you. And this is something that he's a promise he's made. Like Philippians 1, 6, that which I've begun in you, I will perform it unto the day of Jesus, regardless of age, race, or circumstances. I don't care who you are, where you are, how young, how old you are. If I made the promise, I'll move heaven and earth to see it done. Now move on. Get up. Go forward. You know, he, he held the sun and didn't let it move for Joshua to finish fighting. He moved it 10 degrees for King, uh, uh, I just drew a blank there. King, what king? He made the sun, stand, he made the sun back up. Ne- it wasn't Nehemiah. I cannot believe I just had a mental block on that name. You could help me. Who, what king did, it was, it was dying, wanted a sign, and God says, I'm going to back the sun up 10 degrees so you know. Who? who? Hezekiah. That's it. Thank you. Well, we all won't, we won't forget that one, will we? Hezekiah. God helped him. He fed another one with ravens. He backed up the Red Sea. For crying out loud, what's he got to do for you? This is an awesome God. He'll do whatever it takes to get you where he told you you're going. What you thought was it'd just be a straight road. 
but there'll be a lot of obstacles, a lot of rubble, some detours, some setbacks, but he will fulfill his promise. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90, and they still didn't have a baby. And there wasn't any hope in Gehenna of having one at that age, unless God did something. I don't know what he did, but I'd like to have some of it. He reversed the aging. Some of our doctors in here do a good job trying to get us healthy on nutrition and anti-aging. But I'd like some of that 100-year-old de-aging stuff that God did that night. I just know Abraham laughed and Sarah laughed and Isaac came into the picture. So there, there had to be a mysterious, miraculous birth. Something had to happen. There was no local pharmacy, okay? And then, and then the heathen king, Abimelech, wanted a 90-year-old woman for his harem. Girls, get you some of that. What king wants a 90-year-old woman in his hair? God must have totally reversed their, their aging. I'll take it too, baby. Service dismissed. We'll, we'll, see, I enjoy God so much. So claim these promises. Put them up in your office. Put them on the bathroom mirror. Whatever you may be facing, financial or the children. My children are the seed of the righteous. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be mine. Make, put something up that is a promise of God and say it out loud. God doesn't need a reminder, but the enemy knows you need to know. And you need to say it because his words are alive and powerful. Well, the people complained about all the rubble in verse 10. But my question is, wasn't that there from the beginning? Well, sure it was. The difference was when they started the project, they're focused on God, his character, his power. But if you focus on all the obstacles in your life and in the lives of others around you, it'll take you down. You'll become discouraged. So let's be determined to be God gazers instead of garbage gazers. Our mission is to connect people to Jesus Christ. I am not here to connect you to a political party. And there are plenty of people pulling on me. They want me to go that way so that we build this church around a particular party. And that party is led by, and either one you choose, by people who are sinners, broken, involved in scandals, immorality, corruption. You can't find one that doesn't have it. You just find some that are a little better at it than others. So get your mind out of political redemption. It has never happened. It will never happen. Only God can change a human heart, and a law won't change my heart. You know, I still speed on 281 when there's no traffic. I know what the law is. I know what the limit is. I have a radar detector, and I know. I do it willfully. I know that. But it has to be something in my heart to make me want to do what is right not to mistreat somebody else, not to be prejudiced towards somebody else, not to cheat somebody else, not to take advantage of somebody in a lower position than me. You ought to know that in your heart. You wouldn't have to go to church to know that. So that's, that's the idea. We want them connected to Jesus in his kingdom, saying in his kingdom, this is how you behave. Oh, okay, didn't know that. Okay, and then God gives us the grace and the power to make that change, little by little. So we want people growing and faithful followers of Jesus. We want to make an impact. So when we face trouble, we got to deal with obstacles. We can make an impact and see God do some amazing things when we get our focus on God. And a couple of quick thoughts here. We need to be instructed from God's Word. That's the constitution of this kingdom. 
God says, you do what's in here. I don't care if you're black, white, Hispanic, or Asian. This is how you do it, right here. There's no other book on it. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. You'll love this. When the seventh month came and the Israelites settled in their towns, all the people assembled together as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe, bring out the book of the law of Moses. That's the first five books of your Bible called the Pentateuch, Penta being five. They said, bring out the the word of the Lord from Moses that he commanded Israel. Verse three tells us that Ezra started reading at dawn and read until lunch. The people listened to the word of God for over six hours. And we know that from verse 18, it continued for a week. And they didn't just sit in the pew, they listened attentively. So I want to thank you, Summit, for your attentiveness and compelling desire to try and understand and with God's help, obey God's word. So in an effort to follow Ezra's great example, we're going to start having six-hour service. (laughs) No, 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 no. I bind you. No, 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 no. Just kidding. So when Ezra opened the book in verse 5, the people honored God by standing up. They were not honoring a man. They were about to hear the very word of God. They were honoring God through his word. And after Ezra praised the great God in verse 6, all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. Nobody fell asleep in this service. And by the way, that's Bible. It's not just a Baptist, amen, or African-American Baptist church, amen. That's Bible. They lifted up their hand. Well, that's Pentecostal. Excuse me, Sparky. That's Christian. If it's in the Bible, it doesn't belong to any group. It belongs to every believer. And when you show me it's in clear scripture, I'm in. So lifting up my hands, saying amen. Let, let us clap your hands, everybody, and shout for joy. Clear scripture. Clear scripture. Standing up to praise, I'll show you in just a minute, was a command. That's not some form made up by men. That was just taken right out of Scripture. We have so messed up that Bible in Christianity, we're as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. We don't know which way's up or down. And the church has been the worst at doing it. So everybody listened attentively as the word was read. Everybody responded. It says, then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground, a symbol of humility before this great God and anticipation of hearing the Bible in a way they could understand. And they were locked in. They were focused. They were ready to hear from their great God. In verse 7 and 8, the Levites join Ezra in helping instruct the people. It says they made it clear, and they gave the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. That's important. See, they probably mingled with the people when there was a break in the reading and answered questions, told them how to live out that word from Moses. So there was a public proclamation of the word in a large assembly, But then there was face-to-face interaction in small groups. We want you in a small group. See, the Bible is divinely inspired. It's designed to be understood. You and I need to contemplate the Word privately, hear it preached corporately, and then apply it in a small group community where you can talk it out and share and ask questions. Second, we have to minister as a team if we're going to make any kind of an impact. Chapter 3 shows how the people working together can accomplish more than just one person doing everything. 
A two-fold, uh, two are better than one, for they have a great reward. A three-fold cord is not easily broken. Psalm 68, God sets the solitary, the loner, in families. He never intended anybody to work alone. He sent out the 70, two by two. There was no loner anywhere. It takes teamwork to make a dream work. I don't care if it's business, sports, or church, or a family. We're all in it together, all for one and one for all. Underline in the Bible every time you see these phrases in Nehemiah, next to him, next to them, after him, after them. These are expressions recorded 28 times in this chapter. Every person had a part as they worked side by side in rebuilding that wall. And the Bible principle is simple. Every person is to be involved in ministry doing something because everyone has a job to do. There are no spare parts in the body of Christ. You want a spare part floating around in you? I don't think so. Well, God says, I don't have any spare parts. Every member is a minister. See, I can't do everything, but I can do something, and so can you. And sitting is not just doing something, okay? We are saved to serve, and we're mobilized in order to minister. Christianity was never to be a spectator sport where we watch. No, we all get in the game. Nehemiah was able to build his team around a rally point, and he pointed them to the purpose of their work was the glory of God. They weren't just working on walls. They were worshiping their worthy God. And the goal of all ministry, really, and of life itself is to glorify God. I want to glorify God in my marriage. I want to glorify God in my life. In, my, in our ministry, in our work, or calling, glorify God. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he says in chapter 1, uh, verse 10, chapter 10, sorry. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do nails at a salon, you work as a medical professional, you're a contractor, you build homes, you do plumbing and pipes, uh, you do paint work, whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God, every single thing. You make coffee out in the cafe, you do it for the glory of God. It won't be lukewarm, be a hot drink. It won't be just thrown together, be mixed right. Excellent. That's because I'm making it for Jesus. It says, whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. So would you do what you do, how you do it, if the Lord was present physically? So I'd like a cafe, Macchiano or whatever. Yeah, where I... Would you just make it lukewarm? Or you say, oh, dang, wait a minute. Be sure I got a clean cup. Be sure I mix it right. Be sure James taught me how to, how to work this machine. Make sure it's hot. There you go, Lord. That's how you do it for everybody, as unto the Lord. I mean, what's, do you really need a college education to figure that out when it's that clear? And then praying with passion. If you're going to do anything in life as a believer, you better be praying. Men are always to pray, not to faint, give up, lay down, suck your thumb, drink Maalocks, and call 911. That's not in the Bible. Our last night of prayer at Summit was amazing. The NPR had doubled since the last one we had. There were 12 different prayers recorded in Nehemiah, and they're filled with adoration, thanksgiving, thank God occasionally, you know, confession. Boy, I failed in this area, Lord. Thank you for your mercy and forgiveness. And petition, asking God to do something. So you find prayers of anguish, joy, protection, dependence, and commitment. So the book is brimming 
with passionate, persistent, personal, corporate prayer. Prayer gives Nehemiah perspective. It widens his vision. It sharpens his vision, and it dwarfs his anxieties. So when trouble hits, first thing you ought to do is pray. Pray. Talk to God about it. Make that prayer clear, what you want God to do. It minimizes the problem instead of magnifying, because what you focus on grows. So focus on God's power, God's promises. Nehemiah's public life was the outflow of his personal life, which was steeped in a lifestyle of dependence on God through prayer. So he depended on God for everything, and his desire was for the glory of God, and he knew that the only venture that's going to be blessed is one that's birthed and bathed in prayer from start to finish. So are you committed to prayer? You know, it's been said prayer is not getting our will done in heaven, but getting God's will done on earth. When you pray, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Most all we got in church was I'll fly away. (laughs) We didn't know whether to fight or fly. But we're to be occupiers until we go to be with Jesus or he comes back. So you fight the good fight of faith. And then worship. That was another one. Worship God. Adore him in worship. Worship is defined as worth, W-O-R-T-H, worth-ship. It's value. So when we engage our mind and our emotions and our will to gratefully acknowledge the worth of God in our lives, that's praise and worship. The money you spent on gas to drive this morning shows value, worth-ship. The time you gave up, any sacrifice you made, shows value of God and doing God's will. See, the worth of our God, it's important. There's no other human activity as high as adoring God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now look at Nehemiah chapter 12. In verse 27, we read about a dedication service of this newly constructed wall. The Levites brought to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving, with music of cymbals and harps and lyres, uh, stringed instruments. Grateful celebration, thanksgiving, and dedication were the three main themes. And they take us to what the heart of worship is all about. Celebration is the primary aspect of praise. It does not begin with us, but with who God is, what God has said, and what God has done. So God is the main event, not the music, not even the message. Thanksgiving was a way of marveling at God's goodness and God's generosity. By offering themselves in dedication, they were surrendering themselves to God. So it should be obvious, but not often, that worship is all about God, not about us. In fact, Most of you would be spectators, but really the only spectator was God. He is watching us. We are praising, praying, and petitioning to him. He's he's the only spectator. Churches become a spectator sport. So ultimately the question of musical style is not an issue, but of majestic substance. Praise must take precedence over our preferences. The purpose of our praising according to Ephesians and Colossians is to worship God and to encourage one another. And the secret of acceptable worship is not simply what we do, but how we do it. Worship was never meant to be drab and boring. There was something uh, exciting and igniting about their worship and praise. And in this Thanksgiving service, there was nothing stereotyped or monochrome about it. 
a wide variety of musical gifts were used to express adoration and praise. In verse 27, they said he had cymbals. That sound quiet to you? Harps, lyres. And it goes on down in verse uh, 41. It tells us the priests played their trumpets. Anybody see anything quiet in that? I can remember in churches, as a, as a little Baptist boy, I can remember that guitars were outlawed and drums. Those were evil. You couldn't bring those to church. David couldn't even show up and got in the church with his harp. That would be illegal. And yet, notice, they played all these instruments, and they played them loud. If you read Revelation, it says in heaven, it was the sound as of thunders of many waters, praise and worship. If you don't like noise, don't get saved. <laughs> See? Because it's going to be loud. Wow. And they had large choirs in verse 31. In verse 43, the priest offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. I'm in real estate. I closed on a house. Praise God. I've worked on it for four months. We finally brought it. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you gave me favor with this brother. Thank you I was able to find this home. Thank you we were able to make the uh, changes necessary to complete a closing on this. Thank you, Lord, uh, for the people that helped me in bringing this to pass. Thank you for the finances I receive out of this close. Lord, thank you. In this economy, thank you for that. I'll be able to honor you not only with my life, my good work, but with my tithe and my offering and bless the house of God. Give God joy when you sell, when you give a close, when something goes well, when you got an unexpected uh, surprise, when the doctor says, well, it's cleared up. We don't find any trace of that in your body. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Thank you. By your stripes, I'm healed. Some of you have got spiritual arthritis. You can't lift a hand. You can't shout. You can't do anything but sit. That's why you're extra wide. Get up. Stand up. It's called the sacrifice of praise. Why would it be a sacrifice if it was easy? There are days you just feel terrible, but I give him the sacrifice of worship because he's worthy, and God loves that. So there's nothing half-hearted about their joyful adoration. They shouted. They said amen. They stood up. That's why we get you to stand up to worship God. Of course, half of you come uh, just on the last song, so you don't have to. Oh, it's terrible. That's, yeah. It just, sit in here with me and count. Okay? You just count from the time Nate starts. Count the people that come in. And you go anywhere. It's the same way. Oh, it's like, wow, not much value to God. But I, I've been sometimes more encouraged by the music and the worship than, than the message. Because it's the outflow, worship and praise, of grateful hearts from people who have personally experienced the lavish generosity and goodness and grace of God. Nehemiah 9 describes another worship service where the Levites got on one side of the crowd, the other group of Levites got on the other side of the crowd, staring at each other, and they started shouting. And these two groups called back and forth to the congregation, one side shouting, confessing the sins of the people, the nation, the other side praising God for his greatness, his grace and mercy. The first group cried out with loud voices. Everybody under loud. You see loud? Yeah, loud. They cried out. That means they cried out. The second group focused on God's character as they sang. 
The rest of this chapter gives the actual words they use. Cries of guilt are followed by shouts of praise for God's greatness, goodness, and graciousness. And in that service, we're supposed to be filled as they were with reverence and rejoicing. In the book, When God Comes to Church, the author says that the great need of the church today is a renewed sense of God's presence referring to an old-time preacher speaking about God sending fire on Mount Carmel during prophet Elijah's day. Well, the manifest presence of God showed up, and he says, how do you know it's true? He says, when God shows up, he shows off. He comes in not to take sides, but to take over. And when he arrives in splendor and glory, it's pretty obvious to everybody he's present and he's in charge. I like that. So, the people are invited to stand up and praise the Lord, their God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, they said, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. So believers here reflected the nature and the character of this great God and his mighty works. If you're struggling with your faith this morning, it might be because your view of God is way too small. A theologian named David Wells writes, it's called the weightlessness of God. He writes, our sense of inadequacy or ineffectiveness can be traced to our limited understanding and experience with God. So worship should alter the way we live. Dr. Alan Ross writes, if worshipers leave a service with no thought of becoming a little more godly in their life, when the purpose of worship has not been achieved, if people continue to be unkind, mean-spirited, divisive, self-centered, or immoral, then there's been a breakdown somewhere in the process. If they are not at peace with one another in the assembly, then they're not at peace with God, and they shouldn't leave until they are. And last, they told others the good news, the gospel. In Nehemiah 12, the people are bearing witness to the watching world. God did this, and he alone should be glorified. Not Nehemiah, not any particular worker. God brought this wall to pass. The enemy had already said that the walls were so weak, a fox could knock them down. But all the people are marching up and down on the walls, shouting and praising. And it was another opportunity to prove this work has been done with the help of our God. If you can do it without God, it isn't it didn't probably from God. He says, you can do nothing without me. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And as they marched on top of the walls, everybody could see what was happening for miles around. And it says, unbelievers heard the sound of praise. In verse 43, it says, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Would that be true of us? That's a noisy place. So God wants us to have a passion to reach out to disconnected people so we can connect them to Jesus and then equip them to be growing and faithful followers. And let's remember that whenever we face trouble, discouragement, we got to deal with a lot of obstacles. And we do it by looking up, not down. And by looking out, not within our own gifts and talent. God will rebuild the obstacles and rubble in our lives. But first, we have to make sure Christ is at home in our hearts. And if you've drifted from him, let me tell you, it's time to come home. When Israel came back and their lives were devastated, 
everything was in ruin. They went back home. And when they went back home, God brought a restoration, cleaned up the rubble, got the obstacles out of the way, and finished the job. They were transformed. So God gave you life, and he made you for his purpose. It's time to allow him to rebuild the broken places in your life. But first, you got to come home. And he's drawing you to himself. Allow him to take you, use you, and fill you. Hey, thanks again for joining us today. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and share it with a friend. Follow me by visiting the links in the description. I'm praying today that God richly blesses you this entire week.